0: Episodes like this remind me of how weird Star Trek really is. Because, how many of you like this episode? Like, legit question. How many of you just right now are like, oh man, this episode's great, you know? Honest question. I'm with you. This is a good episode, but mostly because it hits a lot of good points despite its many flaws. Looking through this episode with analysis mode on, the flaws just are everywhere. There's a lot of things that basically happens just because, you know? There's a lot of convenience, there's a lot of plot convenience, there's a lot of this shouldn't work this way, but it does, because it needs to. You know, things not following logically in-universe, but rather following logically as if following a fictional tale. You know what I'm talking about. And if you've seen this episode, either with me or recently, you know what I'm talking about, um... And it's just funny to see that, because that is so Star Trek, isn't it? There's a reason why the whole stupid premise good episode thing I named after The Cloud, a Star Trek Voyager episode, because because that is Star Trek right there. All right, listen, listen. Hang on, hang on. So so Darth Maul... (laughs) Anyways. So, uh, the Dominion Fleet comes through. Oh no, what do we do? Let's send two runabouts, the Defiant and a Bird of Prey. We got this! Oh, wait, no, we're totally screwed. It's sure a good thing the Dominion actually didn't plan to just attack right then and there. They could have. They could have just been like, oh, Okay. <laughs> Alright, so there's the runabouts and the Defiant destroyed. Uh, We could take the Defiant study, it, but, I mean, who cares, really? And what should we do with the station? Well, Dekat really wants that for some reason, and we're willing to play at politics, so we'll just take the station, just send wave after wave of Jem'Hadar troops until everyone on board is dead, and then we're good! I'll talk more about that in a minute. What I do want to talk about first is basically the A plot, which is, what do you think a Jem'Hadar would do for fun? Obvious answer, they would fight. I bring this up because during the the prison sequence, the Jem'Hadar says, you will study your enemy because this is an enemy you will fight. But all I can think of is, yeah, okay, so these, like, are they cycling in Jem'Hadar warriors? Remember, they number these guys in the thousands, if not tens of thousands. So, you know, having one little fight, unless this is being broadcast across the entire Dominion, I don't think this is really useful information. Although that would be funny if it was being broadcast like that, but I digress. So instead, what I look at this as is, well, yes, we're studying the enemy, that's their justification, but let's just be honest, this is how they relax. This is what they do in their spare time. And something about that actually appeals to me, if I'm being completely honest. Because, uh, there's no good way to say this, there's only so many ways you can fight with others of your own kind, before it gets old, right? So the opportunity to bring in new blood has got to be interesting. And then we see a a series of scenes where Worf wins fight after fight after fight because he will not yield. Now, first of all, I like that because it's very Worf. But second of all, I like that because it's very Worf. The first way it's Worf is that he is the kind of person who, if he believes there's a legitimate reason to, he will not yield. He will not fight a pointless battle. He actually mentions that in this episode, that there's no reason to keep fighting now that their escape plan has been torpedoed. In other words, the only reason he was bothering was because they had an escape plan. Remember, Worf brought that up before as well when it came to the Klingons. There has to be a reason to fight. The fight itself is not enough. Uh, he actually brought that up with the Jim too, now that I'm thinking about it. But the second reason why that's Worf is because he should be winning these fights. I know I've kind of complained about this before, but it's always bothered me the whole wharf loses to prove the bad guy is serious thing over in TNG. It doesn't actually happen that often. It happens, like, I think 13 times or so across TNG. I don't have a list in front of me, so I'm just estimating off the top of my head. But it's still aggravating that there's literally something called the wharf effect, which refers to having the guy who's really good in a fight losing in order to prove that the other guy's stronger. (sighs) Come on, it's wharf. So it's really gratifying to see him just beating the crap out of these Jem'Hadar and basically rockying his way through the fights. Rocky won. <clears throat> I love how Garak deals with his phobia thing as well phobias, there's ways to describe them, but I always like to describe a phobia as an irrational fear, something that you know logically doesn't make sense, and you can reason your way around and through, but it's something that you just have difficulty dealing with regardless. And apparently, uh, Andrew Robinson was actually sick at the time of dealing with that and did have a small amount of real-life claustrophobia. I I do as well, for, for example. So, you know, if I get into a particularly contained space, that will bother me. And so he, according to him, he didn't have to act too much for those scenes. And I believe him, because he sells it. I actually have a strong feeling that, thanks to the nature of television production, they probably filmed all his scenes back to back to back. Just get that all over with and done, even though they're spursed throughout the episode. The um, There's a bit where (sighs) Martok is awesome. And I can't tell you which bit, because it's all of them. But I point this out because you can almost tell that the writers basically told Hertzler to play Martok as someone who is awesome. Rather than, let's be honest, kind of a jerk, which is the way he always portrayed fake Martok, changeling Martok, right? Now I point that out because, well, if we're being honest, that's a hole in the story. It implies that his personality is significantly different than his changeling alternate personality, which means someone should have probably noticed that. You know, as I pointed out, uh, Bashir has only very mildly been changed with Changeling Bashir. So only someone who's really paying attention or really observant, like his best friends, or, you know, another changeling like Odo, should be able to notice that. None of them do, so whatever else, just move past that. But I bring that up. Keep in mind, he was infiltrating for over a month. (sighs) Ignoring all that. Ignoring all that. The reason I bring that up, though, is because you can tell the whole point is to try and sell the audience of Martok. This is not really a spoiler, because the episode basically says this flat-out. Martok is now going to basically become a regular part of the cast. And he will remain so until the end of the show. Now, that's awesome, because Hercler is awesome and Martok is awesome. But you could tell they were trying to sell us on the character by making him, you know, a Klingon who... Well, I'm just going to use my own terminology here. A Klingon who is... Now, this is Martok in a nutshell. And it's I think it's one of the reasons why he is so popular with so many people. I've heard many people argue that Martok is the definitive Klingon. Like, we have a definitive example of most of the races, right? And some people argue which is which and why is wherefore. But a lot of people I know look at Martok as the definitive Klingon. Because Worf has kind of got that hybrid thing going on, right? He's full Klingon, but he was raised human. He was raised in the Federation, so he isn't quite Klingon. But Martok, well... Anywho, <clears throat> I point that out though because he is cool. He does definitely have uh, a decency about him, a sense of internal honor as well as external honor. Obviously, he's played the po- political game and knows what it is because he was someone of rank even before all of this happened, even before he was kidnapped months and months ago. So, this makes a degree of sense. But, <clears throat> excuse me. But I bring it up because. I bring it up because of that base decency is one of the interesting points, and something that's going to be a recurring trend throughout the rest of Deep Space Nine. Uh, to use a direct parallel, I don't remember the Jim Hadar's name, but the Jim Hadar in this episode, who ends up fighting Worf, has a quote that is so awesome, this is not a joke, uh, me and several of my friends have actually sat down and actually discussed this quote, and in its ramifications several times, and that quote is, I cannot defeat this Klingon, all I can do is kill him, and that no longer holds my interest. In other words, showing that the Jem'Hadar do have a sense of decency. And I'm going to use that word very specifically, because that's what it's about. A sense of acceptability, or moderation, or tolerance, or respect, or whatever. The Star Trek ideal, to put it simply. But I bring that up because it is almost always shown, especially in Deep Space Nine, in total contrast to those who have no decency. Which brings me to the Vorta, whose name I also don't remember. I don't even know he's named in this one. But the Vorta, who this entire time is just looking bewildered and baffled by this whole thing. Like, really? Like, this is where you're going with this? Okay, whatever. And he looks so confused. Like, he literally does not understand the concept of basic decency. Because he doesn't. The Vorta have almost universally been portrayed in this negative light. The one and only Vorta who has any redeeming features was Wayune, and that redeeming feature was being played by Jeffrey Combs, so it's not really an in-character thing, you know? And I bring that up because that, I'm going to be bringing that up in many episodes hence, pointing out the the recurring theme of decency versus lack of decency. I suppose this is a good time as I need to segue into talking about Ducat. So, yeah. Um, there's a line in this episode, which I'm just going to quote as word for word as I can. I didn't write it down, but it was the last one of the last lines of the episode. You know, I really thought you'd changed in the last five years. I can see now I was wrong. That line bothers me. See, the writers had always intended Ducat to be the villain. I've talked about this many times before, and this will continue to come up in the future because because it's Dukat, and he just has a very tumultuous character arc out of character, because nobody can agree on the character. So, the intention by several of the creators, most notably Ira Stephen Bear and Ronald D. Moore, was for him to be just pure evil, just the worst. Now, I've talked narratively about this concept before. If we were to use a spectrum from white to black... Uh, There is a purpose that black serves when it comes to showcasing characters because it serves as a way to help emphasize the difference between black and very gray, for example, very dark gray, for example. Um, You know, it it, it allows you to push things into highlight, narratively speaking. I've talked about this several times before. I bring this up here because it feels clear that they wanted Ducat to be the black. This is especially true in season seven. But he hasn't been. Basically, this is probably the first thing he's done in the entire show that is just atrocious, that is at the atrocity level. And yes, I'm counting the occupation in this, because every time we see him with regards to the occupation, he is portrayed in a more gray light. Not good, but not pure evil. And so this just kind of comes out of nowhere, doesn't it? And again, the reason I don't like that line is it's literally telling the audience, no, no, he's the bad guy. Now, I get that, but... You already have the Founders, you already have the Vorta, and other things that will come up in the future. Why push Ducat into this? Especially since there's so much uh, uh, opposition to the idea. If I can go to an aside for just a moment. You know my favorite character in Babylon 5? Londo. And I don't think I have to explain why, really. But I, I bring it up because... He was someone who was in... Oh, geez I don't want to spoil for Babylon 5, but all I'm going to say is that his arc could be paralleled to Dukat's in a few key narrative ways. The difference was Londo is a fully fleshed out, fully realized three-dimensional character who was always intended to be that, and Dukat is a fully fleshed out, fully realized three-dimensional character who was not intended to be that. And make of that what you will. But I want to talk about Dukat's decision... This is going to sound strange, but Dukat's decision makes absolutely perfect sense, Uh, mostly from a political perspective, but uh, also from a personal perspective. As I mentioned last episode, a lot of what Dukat has been going through is uh, horrible and not really fun, and has been just debasing him. And in an addendum to that, though, the Cardassians themselves have been brought low, basically in parallel to Dukat's own being brought low. So you are, I mean, think about this in the political sense, really. You are someone who used to be a major power, who foolishly decided to go to war uh, against a, another power, and that ended up going really badly. Uh, for a long period of time until both sides actively wanted peace and you decided to reassociate your your terms with this other power in order to build a peace that was more beneficial to you than the war ever could be. I'm referring, of course, to the conflict with the Federation. Then... You, given the fact that your your empire is slowly reeling and suffering significant diplomatic and political pressures, as well as a slowly destabilizing and self-destructing economy, which is something that's mentioned several times throughout the franchise, that the Cardassian the Cardassian Union's economy was just self-destructing, and then we bring up the removal of the occupation. And the obviously this would also explain one of the reasons why they were so insistent on holding on to the the, the occupation of Bejer because they needed to reap the rip those resources out of Bejor to sustain themselves, not justifying it, by the way. Then they get the ever-living crap kicked out of them by a significantly stronger military power. You, you kinda see why, from a political perspective, attaching themselves as a vassal state to another, you know, to to another larger power, such as the Dominion, makes a whole lot of sense, at least from the political side. The problem is the Dominion aren't a typical political organization. They will play at politics, but ultimately the Dominion is not a political organization. It is an ideological one, similar to the Federation, actually. And the Dominion ideology is the Founders matter and nothing else does. And we already know the Founders had flat out, the Founder Woman, the evil one, flat-out said that you know all Cardassians are dead because of daring to come up against us this is headcanon but I've always had a private theory that that was always the plan Cardassia joins the Dominion the Dominion use the Cardassians as much as they can in order to accomplish their ends and once they have successfully won to their satisfaction they genocide the Cardassians or worse because this is the Dominion and they're very capable of cruelty now that is taking into account information Dukat doesn't have access to. But you still have to understand this is a, a tiered caste system, basically. Dukat and the Dominion, excuse me, Dukat and the Union, what's left of the Union, has effectively pushed itself into a position where they are now slaves who have ownership over other slaves. That, that's where they're trying to do. They're trying to not be on the bottom rung. And I don't think I need to go into how many problems there are with that. I do find myself wondering how many members of the Cardassian Union, or whatever's left of it at this point, actually supported Ducat's basically power grab because he just took the position of autocrat for himself. And if you're paying attention, there never was an autocrat in the Union. There was the High Council, the Military High Council, there was the, the Judicial Department, which had its supreme power, there's the Obsidian Order, which was basically self destructive at this point, and then there was the uh, the civilian government. And You know, obviously the military supreme command used to hold power, but it was never, you know, I am the the dictator. But now Dukat has positioned himself as dictator of the Union. Which is interesting. Again, I wonder how much support he had in that. How much willing support, for that matter. I'm sure Damar supported him. I just like the idea of him marching into the capital with an army of Jem'Hadar, enforcing the fact that he is now in charge because that's a very political move, too. Because the Union didn't negotiate with the Dominion, Dukat did. And it's entirely possible, and this is, again, pure headcanon, and not really supported by much, but it's entirely possible, that the Cardassian Union and and the the civilian government and all that did not want this, did not accept this, and possibly even fought this. They just had no capacity to do anything about it, because one guy sold out his entire organization to a bigger power. And they they enforced his rule, so now he's in charge. Make of that what you will. Lord knows Cardassians are used to following orders anyways. so I don't know. I do want to mention something. Dukat calls up Sisko and says, Hey, we're coming to destroy you. I w- I'm telling you this as as a favor, since you did save my life. More than once, actually. I point that out. Because I, for once, I think that is a definitive lie. Like, we can argue back and forth how much Ducat tells the truth or lies or in-betweens his way through almost every statement he ever says, but I think that one's a pretty definitive lie, because he knows about the bomb, or at least it is implied he knows about the bomb, and it basically is implied that he's doing his part to make sure as many Federation hole up in that spot as possible, and pretty much flat out saying, hey, we're coming for you. You don't call your shot unless you're either completely arrogant, which, possible, or unless you have a motive in doing so. And right, I'm going to punch you in the face, punk! Right? So, that, of course, leads to the atrocity thing, which I already mentioned, at, and the fact that he's totally cool with Zial dying, which actually contradicts both the past and the future. And you see why I dislike this attempt at making Dukat just pure evil. I, I just don't think it fits the character. I think it is doing a disservice to the character, and I'm... I have spoken against character assassination in every fiction I've ever examined where I felt like it did that. I love Deep Space Nine. It is tied for my favorite Star Trek show and among my favorite television shows of all time. That doesn't mean I think it's perfect and I'm going to restrain from crit- criticism where I feel it is due. That being said, I am very curious to hear what you guys think about this specific tact, because, well... Because I'm I don't know what else to add to that, because I really feel like he's being out of character here, compared to what has happened and compared to what will happen. That can be argued, and I plan to bring this up in the future. <sighs> Let's talk about Dominion Strategy. So changeless sheer, but but changeling. I still haven't decided on that one. Um <laughs> He actually does several quiet things to encourage events along. It's actually quite neat. My favorite one is when he's actually working on Gowron, and he makes a comment of, you know, oh, yes, with the, the Klingons here, you know, the, the Dominion will not be able to stand against us or something. You know, he, I forget exactly how he says it. But it's a very quiet comment in the background, just kind of pushing Gowron in this direction. Now that makes sense because that is how Gowron functions. I've actually already brought that up before. And the League would know that. They have very detailed intel on Gowron. That's probably how they were able to control Gowron so completely back when they were infiltrating Martok in the Klingon Empire. So I think that was a very deliberate push to kind of push him into this direction to make sure the Klingon fleet stayed. Because that's the Dominion strategy. See, here's the funny thing. The Dominion could have just sent in a fleet and crushed them. They could have. If they sent a real, no really fleet, they would have curb stomped. DS9, the Romulans, and the Federation, and the Klingons. That's just fact, I'm sorry. We know the numbers of ships the Dominion can can wield later on in this show, if they actually go into a total war status. It's a lot more than 50. But they didn't. Instead, they have an infiltrator who has a plan to basically, you know, arrange this situation. Again, I mentioned the stakes thing arrange a situation where all of their enemies are in one spot, and then they just basically blow up a bomb on them. Very simple when you think about it. But really think about that for a second. It is the Dominion mentality in the overall strategy level. So this is Founder strategy we're talking about at this point, the actual upper echelons of the Dominion. Look at this situation and say, well, we could send in a fleet to crush them, but for whatever reason, we're not going to. Maybe it's too messy. Maybe it would take too long. Maybe there's too many variables. Maybe... It's just the Dominion's nature to not approach things directly. Because we've seen that many times, right? They have the the raw martial power to just stomp over people in their way, but they consistently don't. Now, if I'm being 100% honest, I think the reason behind that is because if they did, then we wouldn't have a show. Out of character reasoning, in other words. We could probably argue in-character reasoning for why the Founders don't just stomp on people. And I could go ahead and give you my own answer to that, because that's what I'm here to do. It's my job. I think that the Dominion tries to avoid direct confrontation and martial prowess when they can, specifically because, well, it's messy, it's costly, it's long-term, and it breeds revolution. Anytime you move in and militarily conquer someone, they're not going to like that. And they're going to be upset about that. I mean, how many games have you played where that's a mechanic, where you conquer someone, and then you have to go way out of your way to be super nice to them and super happy them. And they don't care. They're still pissed at you because you conquered them. This is so understandable, I don't even feel the need to explain it. So I feel like the Dominion tries to either coerce, approach an enemy laterally, basically show them through you know, genetic plagues or alterations or genocide or whatever, that there's no point in resisting them, or to just erase the problem in its entirety, like they were trying to do here. Now, I bring that up. I really want you to think for a moment about what the Dominion was willing to do. Because they were willing to destroy a system to deal a blow. Not even a crippling blow, by the way, based on numbers and based on spirit. I mean, they would have lost Gowron. They would have lost Cisco. You know, These are major losses, but this is not a crippling blow to any of the organizations here. This is just a blow. We're going to detonate this system to do this. And they were willing to wipe out all life on a major Class M planet. Basically, this would push the Bajorans into, not quite extinction, but, you know, getting there. And in addition to the loss of billions of, of, of those billions of lives, who are definitively innocents or civilians, it would have taken out a couple of three fleets. And that's the way they function. That really is the Dominion in a nutshell, isn't it? They like to just go way beyond any levels of acceptability because nothing matters to them except the Founders. I know I've talked about that before. But I mentioned some holes. Um, why is a runabout just hovering in orbit of this prison? That's actually going to be brought up in a future episode, and funnily enough, it will never be explained. It, it, let's just be honest. It is a plot convenience. Because there is literally zero reason for for them to have the runabout just in orbit of this prison and leave it functional. I remember when I went back through the series the second time, knowing everything that's coming, and I was like, okay, maybe they did this on purpose. Maybe they wanted them to get away. But no matter how much I thought around that, I could not come up with any reason for why the Dominion would want to give them that chance to escape. Like, nothing came out of that that was a positive. In fact, a changeling died as a consequence of that. Oh yeah, that reminds me. That's my second little plot hole. Based on the way the events are presented, by all accounts, the changeling Bashir was going to die detonating the star. I have never bought that, even since the first time I saw that. They are so self-important and so self-focused. The very idea that one is willing to die to accomplish a relatively minor gain in, in the overall galactic struggle just did not, What? No. I'm not even sure a changeling would be willing to do that if it would wipe out Earth, you know? Earth and Kronos at the same time. I still don't think a changeling would be willing to do that, not unless it was like a, a life-or-death situation for the rest of the changelings. Then there's the warp-in system thing, and I have to bring that up because it's dumb. So back in Star Trek One, the motion picture they made a point where we can't warp in system. And in this episode, they make a point where they can't warp in system. I brought this up all the way. This is like five years ago now, uh, or four years, something like that. I don't know how long it's been. It's been years since I did my Star Trek The Motion Picture rumination. I brought, a po- I brought it up then. We can't warp in system. This is something that is uh, stupid, but also contradicted by a huge amount of Star Trek. The amount of times they've gone to warp in system is through the roof. Uh, one episode right off the top of my head, is, um, oh, I can't think of the actual name of it. It's the one where there's the doctor who puts his brain and his patterns into data. You remember that one? They, they, they warp in and they warp out from orbit, never mind in system, and everything's fine. You know, just just to name one example right off the top of my head. I've always been irritated by this because while there are reasons to have the whole in-system thing, that none of those reasons exist here. It's just there to, to add an extra line of the situation is dangerous for absolutely no reason. I mean, this is already a dangerous system. They're about to blow up the star. You don't need to have an extra line about, oh my god, we need to do this super dangerous maneuver that is super simple and has no problems or negatives whatsoever and basically never comes up again. (laughs) Huh? And I already mentioned the Martok thing. Those are the four big ones I jotted down in my notes. The Warpin system, the Runabout, the Changeling, and the Martok. Although, I guess the ducat thing could count as a fifth. I actually don't have much else to say about this episode, except uh, there's a really funny scene between Cork and Zial. Zial tends to do some good stuff. This is our final Zial, by the way. Uh, This is the last actress who will play her. We'll be seeing her in in several episodes in the future. So that's cool. What I really wonder about is... (sighs) I'm trying to think how to phrase this. How deflated did you feel after this episode? Because the war hasn't begun. They just tried to detonate a star, and yet for some reason... And I really... I really want you to get this in mind. The, the, the Dominion, a political power, just tried to detonate a star of a habited world, plus many, many fleets in the, in the area, or fleet, you know, the, the three fleets, plus the station. If that isn't a declaration of war, I have no idea what is. That is so many levels above and beyond. There's not even much of a real life equivalent of that. That would be the equivalent of if Made Up Aston decides to nuke other Made Up Aston, and the other Made Up Aston is just like, well, you know, you know, even though the nuke attempt failed, they still tried to. And yet, as we'll see, the Federation will continue to resist the urge to go to war for quite a while, actually. What in the world? I mean, I, I, I get it, and I'll talk about it when we get there, but you just I really want to stress that point. And that's why I say this episode feels like a misstep to me. While there's some good stuff here, great character moments, excellent directing, um, the script is just not polished. It feels like it was rushed through and it feels like it needed a couple more you know polishing passes is what i call that i don't know my opinion and i'm curious of yours as always i'll see you next time guys